a controversial thing that I think would help a lot of people is understanding that design is a business career um, mm-hmm. and that businesses want to be profitable and it's that your salary costs more than the profit or revenue that you bring in for your company, then you get laid off. Yo, yo, yo. What up? No, no. How's it going? It's going. Thank you for joining us, Treg. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. All from a tweet. All from a tweet, but from a very special person, a friend of the pod, uh, Jed Bridges. And he recommended you for the podcast to come on and for us to talk. So kind of means you're a big deal. I Honestly, I don't think I've ever actually talked one-on-one with my voice to Jed. Only through Twitter. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that, that tends to be the thing in, in, in that space, to be honest. Yep. More yep. nons, right? Um, cool. So welcome to the pod. Uh, we have a lot of questions for you. Uh, I did a little bit of Twitter stalking about an hour before the pod to refresh my, my brain on a lot of your takes. A lot of them I've seen throughout the week, and we'll get into some of that. We'll start off by actually diving into your role. Current, actually, before that, how did you get into design, and how did you land at where you are now? And then we'll talk about that. Yeah, cool. <clears throat> um, my journey into design started in uh, like 2005 for me that was fifth grade which like for a long time i felt like i was really young when i would say that but now i feel like i'm old when i say it like like there's some time in the past three to four years that transition uh but yeah so like in fifth grade i uh (laughs) i I, we had a a computer in my sister's room that was the family computer i became obsessed with making things on the internet Uh, like my gateway was deviant art and then i was on like games like neopets just like making junk, just like profile picture stuff, uh, you know, uh, designing my user lookup, uh, downloading Macromedia Flash illegally uh, on the uh, <laughs> on the family computer. Uh, yeah, so that was like my first foray into design. And um, I remember I would pick up the Computer Arts magazine at Barnes and Noble when I'd go with my dad, uh, and I'd like read about being a freelance web designer, and I was like, this sounds cool. Uh, and funny because like, did, did, did they call it web design? Or was it called like a like a webmaster? What did what did they yeah, call that? Okay, so it was freelance <laughs> web design at the time, uh, specifically web design, and it was the uh, all the magazines at the time were talking about web 2.0. Everyone's like, "Whoa, these things are glossy and crazy." Um, yeah, it's funny because uh, like now I don't like doing freelance web work at all, uh, <laughs> but 2005 we thought that was the thing. Um, and then in high school I picked up guitar and I thought that was the thing I was like music is rad I still love music uh, but I was like this is my focus this is my calling Uh, started a band uh, similar to Jed maybe that's why he recommended me Uh, started a band that was my super like focus Uh, I was actually going to school for music I was going for recording arts Um, and by necessity I started designing our album covers our t-shirts our social media presence, like learning about marketing, uh, grew it to a thousand likes on Facebook, which was like a, a grind to get a thousand people to care about my stupid metalcore band. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so like, you know, just like started designing stuff for for our band, uh, was going to school uh, for recording arts. And I was in this Facebook group of people also going for recording arts. And I saw all these people saying, 
how none of the bands wanted to pay them. Uh, no one wanted to record with them and how they had to have like a full-time job on top of what they mm-hmm. wanted there to be their job. And I was like, there seems to be a supply and demand problem here and I'm adding to the supply. So literally like on a Friday before I was supposed to start class at a four year long program for recording arts, I changed my major to design. Cause I was like, Hey, I like this design thing. I did it in, you know, elementary and middle school, making stuff on the internet, but doing it for my band. Maybe this is the thing uh, and ended up being like the perfect decision. Uh, fell in love with it, quit the band. Um, yeah, and it's kind of been history ever since. Uh, I had a interactive class, uh, interactive media, that so was like UX, um, that like blew my mind and changed my perspective on the world. When I learned that like UX is measurable, I was like, this is this is it. Um, so ever since, it's been my focus. Um, worked at JP Morgan Chase. Uh, been at some startups since that. Uh, yeah, here I am. I think that uh, Pascal and I probably. I'd like to dive more into specifically what you meant by uh, UX being measurable. What is interesting yeah. about that? Because that sounds a lot of people probably really boring mm-hmm. that you put numbers, KPIs, whatever behind uh, improving user experience. But can you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, the specific thing that like, blew my mind was uh, Fitz Law, which is the size of an object determines how fast it is. Or it takes to, for your cursor to get to that object, which is like you never use that in your day to day. And it's kind of an obvious thing, but the fact that it was like measured in a way and there was research around it, uh, it, it kind of mm. blew my mind. Uh, and so there's something about the, like the combination of creativity and business and psychology that really struck a chord with me. Um, and yeah, being able to like measure the, the impact of what you do is really cool. Cause I spent so long in like more creative endeavors, like not really knowing what, actually was driving people to like it or dislike it like with music it's you almost never know and it kind of doesn't matter it's more about your taste Uh, but to have something that's like one part taste but also you can like prove if it's working or not was really cool so that is pretty like yeah there's like i guess different levels to that because you can say that in a sense like okay that might be considered part of user experience but like measuring the size and distance of something is not actually measuring the experience it's measuring the ui of how somebody interacts with it and if it is successful in its micro objective, but not the overall objective yet. But then you can still add more layers to it and say, okay, there's actually more metrics, more things that you can do to study how somebody actually uses something and enjoys it. Is there, mm-hmm. is there metrics or, or maybe not metrics, but like are there ways in, in which you find that you are more comfortable with in measuring like the emotional appeal of something as opposed to like a quantitative thing? That's a great question. Um, I think qualitative, specifically discovery research, is some of the most valuable UX research. Um, Usability is obviously important, uh, but you get there pretty quick. It's like six or so rounds of testing, uh, and you you learn most of your usability problems. So yeah, discovery and qualitative is so so powerful. Uh, When I was at J.P. Morgan Chase, I was on a team of researchers and strategists, uh, some of like the best researchers I've ever seen perform research. Like you'd see them ask a question in a certain way and you're like, I see what you did and that's really smart. Uh, so I learned a lot through that. Um, and yeah, talking about emotions, when you're talking money, it's so uh, so emotional. It's so tied to that. Uh, so there was a lot of ways when I was there that we would think about that. Um, a big thing is avoiding like shame 
and and it's hard to measure that quantitatively. So that's something you'd have to talk to an actual user about. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question. Um, in, in like more recent work that I've done, uh, like I was at uh, Stark working on accessibility. Are you still there? Uh, or uh, I left Stark in February, so I have, okay, have a cool. new gig. I'm at a company called Congrats. Nightfall. Thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, so still great friends with all the people at Stark. Still think they're going to win. Um, just needed some. Uh, I went to a technical product, so I'm working on cybersecurity stuff now. I, I wanted Ooh. to flex that part of my brain. Uh, so yeah, uh, at Stark we would talk a lot about uh, when we first set setting up the Stark for Mac, which was the main thing I was hired to work on. Uh, we talked a lot about the um, perception of yourself and your role as you're working on something that's related to accessibility. Because like, there's part one part of this that was assumption and then it was validated when talking to people. But like, there's a lot of guilt and shame that can go into that. And also some like fear that like, you're going to take something from me. Like if I'm telling you that, hey, this thing you did isn't accessible. If we said that with the wrong tone, we could turn you off from accessibility as a whole. And then you become like the people on Twitter who are like, accessibility is stupid ux is stupid make everything light pink on white like there, there's like this like gut reaction to go the opposite direction uh you could also run the risk of uh like causing the um like the ostrich effect where you stick your head in the sand and you want to you want to avoid um you know anything that makes you uncomfortable um and it, it, it's very like possible to make it feel like a moral failing uh, and that's like the exact opposite of what you want because like literally we're trying to make you better at your job so that people can use the things that you make. That's like it. That's the the goal, right? Um, so yeah, through doing like qualitative research, literally one on one interviews, um, we got to uncover the different ways that uh, you know that you could you could do that, uh, make them feel uh, worse or better. Uh, yeah, and, and to kind of bake those things into the principles uh, and the product uh, as a whole as a result. That's awesome. Can you give an example real quick about like a positive way that you can make them feel? Um, yeah. So obviously you wouldn't want someone to feel positive about having a bunch of like accessibility errors. <laughs> so like there's some urgency that needs to happen. Right. Um, uh, but instead it's like when something has been resolved uh, or they've made strides in a direction uh, rewarding that in some way, mm. like not only are we saying like, Hey, your stuff is this much more accessible, but also like you did a good job <laughs> um, adding that sort of stuff on top. Uh, and when we're talking money, uh, at, you know, at Chase, uh, that was a, a massive portion of the work that we did. Um, I can't talk about a ton of it because it, some of it probably might not ever happen, but it's still proprietary. Uh, but we, what did launch from the work I did is autosave in the Chase app. Um, and there's little tips as you go along when you set up the autosave rules that, that help you figure out um, how much to save, what your goal should be. Uh, and we made sure to keep that language really neutral because uh, that's super important. We don't want it to be too positive because like, then it feels like you're trying to get something from me and people are so skeptical of the bank. They're like, what are you trying to get from me? Why are you trying to, why are you saying nine months of savings? Like, what does this mean? Why are you doing that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and people are super skeptical uh, and for good reason sometimes. Um but then yeah. like when something happens, when they actually do the work to like give them that benefit, like, hey, you saved this much more over this time uh, to like give them that that like little hit of dopamine uh, in addition to the actual like better position they are in financially. 
Um, so yeah, those are a couple of examples of, of ways that we've done that or I've done that in the past. That's awesome. I think that Pascal might want to talk about like his, some of his experiences with accessibility and trying to implement that at, at a large mm-hmm. scale. Because I know that uh, from your experience at Stark and other companies trying to win over other people, I guess at Stark is probably easy. That's the focus. But like other companies, accessibility is not the focus. Mm-hmm. And I was recently talking to a founder and they're like, I don't care about accessibility in this round of design because what we're doing is trying to build a product to test out and see if it actually works. And then we'll go back through it. Um, mm-hmm. Only have like 10, like 10 people. We want to actually try to have this be used. If 10 people like using this and they actually will pay for it, then we'll go back and invest in it. So like there's different times in which kind of you can uh, allocate resources to something like that. Cause that is another yeah. thing to worry about. But Pascal uh, at other companies, you've led efforts in trying to integrate accessibility and some of them succeeded and some of them failed. Can you talk about those experiences, Pascal? Yeah. And, and it's something that's always like, to your point, some companies want to get out and launch, like launch a product and then figure out accessibility. From my experience, when they do that, they actually never end up going back to accessibility. They just like, it's just an afterthought and then they plug it in here and there. Like, mm-hmm. In my opinion, it has to be done from the start, whatever you're designing, design it, from an accessibility perspective, so that then doesn't have to be an afterthought. Like, you know, I've worked on huge enterprise software that was striving for accessibility. Didn't matter which component you were designing, which element, you had to include accessibility in it because it wouldn't be consumed, it wouldn't be adopted. While we had other companies that I worked with and they wanted to be the best company in the world where the platform that everybody uses yet was zero accessible. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to explain to them, it's like one out of four individuals have accessibility issues. So how can you say in your principles or company things that you want to be the company that anybody can use? You're failing right out of your mission because you're not accessible. So you're failing right away. How did they get your failing? And they're designing that even I that have zero accessibility issues. I could not make out a text field, an input field or anything because the color contrast ratio was so close that depending on the brightness of my screen, I could not see the difference yet. They wanted to design this way. It was the best design ever. And it, it, it just gets into the elements where good design is good design. It's not about making that shiny new button animate and woohoo, it, it's fantastic. It's about good design, people mm-hmm. using a product, not to get likes on Twitter or, or anything. It's about making a product that people use that's accessible and that's actually going to have an impact in the world. And I think that a lot of people don't have that in set. So when you design, design it at accessibility with that in mind, and then you're not going to have it as an afterthought. It should always be there mm-hmm. right away out of the gate. That, that's my two cents from mm-hmm. the experiences of working like in so many different industries. <laughs> that's how I think you should approach anything you design. But yet too many tables shelf it and then actually never get back to it. Yeah. Something like 98% of the internet is not accessible uh, to, to this day. Uh, and the cost of retrofitting for accessibility is 100 times more expensive. So if you are at an early stage and you're willing to spend 100 times more dollars to fix the problems that you're building, yeah, go ahead. Um, but also when people say like, oh, well, we're not building this for everyone. We're building this for a specific segment of people. Like, yeah, and guess what? Every segment has people in it that have disabilities. Like, there's not like a 
this group of people are disabled and this group of people are your users. Like that's just never the case. There's always going to be overlap. Uh, and so uh, at Stark, we were giving this master class um, and uh, one of the slides in it is uh, it's like design for everyone. And I cross it out and it's like design for the people that you want to design for, but it should be for anyone designed for anyone. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyone should be able to use the thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's for them. There's a difference between those two things. Uh, so yeah, and, the and one thing that, from the beginning that, is so important. And, and I agree. And I think one thing that a lot of people forget, they always constantly put themselves in, I'm the user. Like, I, this looks great because I'm the user. You are not yeah. the user. I don't care if you use a product 100 times a day. You are not the user. At the end of the day, you're not. I mean, yes, you're, you are a user, but you can't design just for yourself. Yeah, you, you can be a user. Uh, but oftentimes, because people think that they're the user, they become selfish in their intent on how they're designing. They don't actually look at the research. They don't actually talk to users. You go, I'm a user. I already know what they're going to think. Maybe you're a subject matter expert, and I agree that you can become very, very intelligent as to what your users are uh, thinking mm -hmm. intuitively. But you should always still go back to the research. You always still go back and, and understand what their perspectives are. Because oftentimes, you're stuck in a bubble, and there's something you can't see because you're in the bubble. And I really like what you said, Treg, about design for anyone, not everyone. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like this other quote that I recently read. Um, you can have anything, but not everything. Mm. Right? If you want every, if you want to buy a car, go for it. If you want to get a hot, nice house, an uh, early hot spouse, you want to have like all these other things in your life, fine. Uh, but there's going to be a point where you're going to spread yourself too thin trying to do all these initiatives. Uh, trying to run all these businesses, try whatever. Um, you need to focus on what you really want because you can have anything you really want, just mm -hmm. not everything that you really want. You have to prioritize that. And also that translates back to what you're saying before. Um, anyone, not everyone. Um, I want to jump real quick. How did you meet Jed? How did you guys cross paths? L literally Twitter. Yeah. I Yeah, I'm like super on Twitter. I think I've found um, almost every job that I've ever had through Twitter, except for what? One. Yeah, really? that's wild. Yeah, um, like Stark was because I became friends with Cat, the CEO, on Twitter, uh, and we met up and had coffee in New York. And uh, you know, a year or some change later, I'm working for a company. Um, <laughs> yeah, and before that, it was Candid. I became friends with. Ethan, who was uh, one of the designers at Candid. Uh, Candid's a direct-to-consumer, clear liner company. So it's like Smile Direct Club, but uh, the competitor to them. Um, yeah, so I, I became friends with him on Twitter. He moved to New York around the same time I did, met up with him a few times, complained about work, uh, and then started working for Candid. So yeah, a so lot of how, my gigs how, were through Twitter. How do you get the gig through Twitter? Like, talk, Walk us through that. <laughs> yeah, so actually, I'm like super passionate about um, mentoring uh, like new designers, young designers. Uh, and this is something I tell almost all of them is like, have a presence online or like find some group. It doesn't have to be Twitter. But I think Twitter is great. Um, not everyone's voice is meant for Twitter. Um, but like find where designers are that you care about and you like, and you want to talk to and then join the conversation. Um, and yeah. So like literally it's just through the day-to-day -day interactions, just like, you know, being in people's replies, like replying to cat being like, I agree. I like this thing. Uh, and then eventually it turns into like a real friendship. And then they post a job listing and I DM them and I'm like, Hey, we've been talking for years. Uh, how about 
I joined your company. So what I like what you said was you join a community and be active and participate in that community and listen to others who have other opinions and kind of help form your opinions. So that's like number one. Number two is you can use it as an opportunity to become friends and get on a personal level and yeah. prove your value over time and build that relationship so that when you get to number three, they post a job, you already have that relationship built and you have the the eminence, whatever you call it, uh, that kind of social presence in the community. They're more likely to pick you because you've already established yourself. So I really like those three things. That's yeah, smart. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that has been my strategy. That's what I started doing when I was... Uh, in school, um, just like found where designers were and, and started talking to them. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of value there. And I think mentoring is is also a great way for you to grow personally and professionally. Like you, you get you get out of it as much as you put in. So a lot of times like people think, oh, I'm just giving out. No, you're actually going to grow a lot more because you learn from other people. Like you learn, even if you have way more experience, you're going to learn a lot from the conversations you have. You're going to learn a lot about yourself, how you interact with the individuals, and even how you apply things. So I think there's, it's such a great element to your career. And I recommend this for everybody. And just putting yourself out there. Like I, I, I talked to, like in, in my one-on-ones with a lot of people, I talk about, you know, eminence and putting yourself out there and writing blog posts and stuff like that. Because when you grow, you get a lot of your next roles because you put yourself out there and you you start to see yourself as a thought leader in the industry. And even if somebody wrote a hundred posts, like there's already a hundred posts on white space, you can still write about it and bring your perspective to it because you can have a different opinion and it's okay. Yeah. I, um, when I was in school, we had to write, um, it was in like the, a senior, a senior level class. We had to write, about these different topics and they were like supposed to be about blog length and the professor was trying to get us to put our stuff out so that people would see it like exactly what you're saying to like refine our own thoughts but also like potentially generate interest uh and i ended up putting mine on medium um Mm. i've taken those posts down now because like they're super cringy to me now Uh, but one of them was like hey just write a list like an article like a, a blog about the companies you would want to work for uh, and at the time, and it's partially why I ended up at JP Morgan Chase, I thought that I was interested in large scale companies. So I wrote about like Facebook, Google, uh, what else did I write about? I might've written about Twitter. Um, <clears throat> but I like literally, I called out the CEOs by name. I was like, hey, Mark, I want to work for your company. Here's why. Or like, you know, hey, uh, Sundar, I want to work for your company. Here's why. Uh, and a designer from Mixpanel saw it and reached out to me and he's like, Hey, I'm in Denver. Let's meet up and have coffee. So I ended up having coffee with someone uh, and talking about design uh, because of that post. And like, obviously I didn't end up going to those companies that I wrote this post about. I ended up at JP Morgan chase. Uh, and then I also learned that I didn't like large scale. What I liked was getting to scale. Um, but like all of that was just because I, I wrote and tried something. Right. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. That's cool. I, I want to, I want to ask you more of your, your differing opinions on certain topics. Okay. Let's go. And some of them were the more recent ones. So uh, we're just talking about this before uh, we got on the pod. Mm. Why don't you like wireframing? What did wireframing do to you? And what, what hurts? Tell me. Tell yeah. Dr. Bernstein. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so 
yeah, I mean, like everyone, I was taught how to, I mean, I don't know, like everyone, uh, like everyone that's coming up in school now or going through programs now, I started out learning how to do wireframes. I, you know, I used balsamic to make my stupid medium fidelity wireframes. Um, I've user tested wireframes, which is stupid. Don't do that in my opinion. Um, yeah. Why? Okay, so there's so many reasons why. I'll get there. <laughs> Wait, I will get there. Okay. Uh, so when I was at uh, at Chase, um, I had a the person who found me on Twitter and got me the job at Chase. Uh, his name is Craig. Uh, there was a Craig, a Greg, and a Treg all in one team. By the way. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was a it was hard on Zoom calls. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he he said it one time. He was like, "I saw wireframes die a horrible death." Like five years ago in this career, the fact that like these people are delivering wireframes to their engineers is silly. Um, and it kind of like uh, wireframe pilled me or whatever the phrase mm. might be, right? I saw the light. I was like, you know, he's right. And then if you have a design system at all, there's this middle step where you're making these medium fidelity wireframes often in Figma that doesn't need to happen. Just drop in the components. You have a library. What are you doing? Um, so a lot of people, I, there, I had a fairly uh, designed Twitter viral uh, tweet um, about wireframes. Um, it, uh, so a lot of people read very uncharitable things in that. Mm. Literally, I think that the middle step of medium fidelity wireframes is a massive waste of time 99% of the time. Sketching, super useful. I sketch. I do sketches. And sometimes people's definition of a wireframe looks a little bit more like a sketch. Um, but I think if you are doing whole flows in black and white, drawing like vector boxes, you're you're wasting time. The faster you can get something to look real, the better, because it's easier to talk to clients, to stakeholders, to your developers, to your teammates about something that looks real than something that looks like a gray box. So when you're user testing a wireframe, First of all, let's assume that you're making a consumer product for someone who's not a designer. You have to have them abstract away why this app is gray boxes. They have to understand what these squiggly lines of filler text mean. Um, it's, it's a mess. It's not useful. Get them something that looks real. And if you're not to the point of having anything that looks real, then you shouldn't be user testing. You should be doing discovery research. If you're doing discovery mm. research, there is room to bring in like an example app or like a printed out piece of paper that you can cut up and move around that has stuff that looks real. And it's like, Hey, build your perfect app that does X, Y, Z, or, you know, map out your, uh, at Chase, we'd like map out your finances on this piece of paper. Like where does your bank account sit versus your savings versus your, you know, your student loan debt. Um, like that sort of stuff is super valuable, but a gray wireframe click test silly uh, it's super silly in my opinion okay i i'm going to respond but i want pascal to jump in before i do because he knows i'm gonna leap for your throat in a minute Go so, for it. <laughs> uh pascal why don't, why why don't you respond before i go on my next rant no it's okay and, and i know we're what you're gonna know because we've had this conversation before but i agree with you uh <laughs> on wireframing i'm not gonna lie i'm where i am my i've never wireframed and I, I still don't wireframe. I don't, I don't even sketch the majority of the time. I just like process everything in my head. I don't know, maybe my, the, the way my brain is wired, but that's how I, I go about it. I, yeah. I think that I've, I've researched a lot of studies and I, I could, I'm more happy to share some on that, that uh, K 
counter argue the wireframe argument because I know everybody tells us you got to wireframe, you got to remove all expectations for your customers. They don't want to, they're going to create expectations by them. And they're just focusing on that thing. They're not want to focusing on that blue button that you've created. Sure. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think I've, I've read the counter arguments and studies that prove the total opposite numerous times over. So I think would I agree, like I'm in, in the zone that if you want a wireframe, you wireframe. I don't care. Don't force me to wireframe. I've never wireframed. I'm not going to start tomorrow. And I, like to me, I like, I'm not like, and, and pe- when people force me to, to wireframe, it irritates me because I don't know how to wireframe. I just like, I think in my head and I design and I've always done it this way. I think to the, your point, especially in Figma now, people actually break components, turn them gray to make it look like a wireframe. Like, what's the point of it? You already have the frigging component in Figma. Drop it in, design it, move on with your day. I understand you don't want to get tied into color. Okay, cool. But mm-hmm. I like, I don't know. And, and people are going to have different opinions on it. That's okay. <laughs> I think you can have the same different opinions as you like blue. I don't like blue. I don't care. Move on with your day. Let's go. Let's just get to the results at the end of the day. It's the same as naming layers. I don't name my layers and I don't care. Like, I'm not going to lie and say I name all my layers and group everything perfectly. I don't. I'm still where I am, and I was still being able to be a successful designer. I think it's not about everybody has their own path. Everybody has their own way. Everybody has reasons for doing things. But I still get outcomes done. My outputs are still outstanding. And I think that's what you got to focus on. Don't get tied down to these silly arguments that everybody has. And, yeah, I can keep going on this, but I know... I know Mitch likes to wireframe. I know he likes to sketch and I respect him for that. And that's okay. But we still get along, even if I don't name my layers. <laughs> See, um, I don't know about the naming layers thing. I might have a problem with that. <laughs> There's a certain point where you should name your layers. And that's if it's being looked at by a developer, in my opinion. But well, that's a whole other topic. I don't know. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm on Twitter. So, so it's funny because, so Treg, you, you took the, uh, the stance, the argument that People should not be wireframing. It's a waste of time. Generally. Pascal, you took the argument that you don't give a fuck because it doesn't matter. It's always about up to the person, but you personally are wired not to do it. And you've been successful not doing it. And so I'm going to take the other stance, which is, yes, you should wireframe, but but asterisk, a big asterisk there, right? So it depends. And in, in my experience, whenever I show somebody a hi-fi design, and I'm not trying to actually talk about the UI, they get so embedded into talking about the pixels that they forget the whole point of the study. And I can never get them back on the study the way that I need them to get the results that I want. Maybe I'm a bad researcher, probably. But, and that probably plays into it. But what I've noticed, no matter how much I ask them and prompt them beforehand, they get distracted. So when I dumb down the UI so it's just wireframes, I can get them to understand the user experience flow and then worry about the other details later because number one, I don't know all the details until after, like, I don't know if I need to design that feature at all, right? Why would I spend so much time designing something, making it look good and then showing it to them and they go, oh wait, that's not for me. I'm not that type of user. I'm a different persona basically, right? And that's happened before. And so we scaled back and I don't, I don't like, I don't agree with the mid-fi. I don't think we should be doing mid-fi design anymore. I think that, that I agree with where Mm -hmm. we should be getting rid of that because you're, you're just adding an extra additional step when you can jump and just do everything in the hi-fi at that point instead of having to scale back, make a grayscale, whatever. Um, but I, I, do, I would say maybe my wireframe is more close to a sketch 
that way it's not super nice and neat. Like I'm not like, oh my God, I got to get the pixels correct in the wireframe. It's just, I got to have a, a left side panel, which is just a regular rectangle. It's very long and I stretch it past the artboard, right? I don't really care, but it's a wireframe that's black and white because I'm not testing the visuals I'm testing the experience going through it, like going through the whole like wizard flow, for example, creating an object. Am I getting the right content in there? Am I getting the right, like that's what I test when I do a wireframe content more so than the actual usability of is this button big enough to do notice it, whatever. Yeah, I think that's fair. I agree that there is always an asterisk. Like even in my original tweet that started this whole thing, I said like wireframes are really good at solving layout problems where you're like, Mm -hmm. I know I need something here, Maybe I'll put a box that represents it for now. Like, that's fine. And um, I, I also think that uh, a lot of people's understanding of wireframes are conflated with sketching. Um, mm-hmm. For me, I spend a lot of time in, like, people were saying, like, do you skip low fidelity? Do you just start design? Like, no, like, I spend a lot of time writing. I actually type out a lot of things about the experiences I'm going to design. And I spend a lot of time in user flows or task flows, whatever you want to call them, and then user journeys. Like that's the area where a lot of my time is spent. Um, I've also started championing, championing these uh, the concept of user roles and user role maps uh, to replace personas because I also hate personas. So that's a whole other Wait, thing. what? Wait, wait. So you're replacing them with from going from personas to user roles. What, what's yes. the difference? Yeah, so user roles are based in uh, role theory and activity theory. Uh, it's actually like almost like a pre-internet HCI thing, human-computer mm-hmm. interaction. Um, but the concept is that you have a system and actors inside the system. So the users using your thing are actors. And actors can pass through different roles as they use a system. Uh, so like an example... Um, is, you know, at a pizza restaurant, you might have all the people who are employed that are your actors and they pass through different roles as they're going about their day working. Maybe the person who is, you know, uh, the, the bus person picking up, you know, pizza trays and cleaning up tables. At the end of the day, they change from bus boy to sweeper or whatever the case may be. Um, and, and more like a hands-on and digital world, um, when I was working on Stark, we we mapped out uh, designers, product managers, um, engineers, like stakeholders, those different actors, and how they pass through the Stark ecosystem and how they become, you know, um, like an accessibility expert is one of the roles, um, an engineering expert. And like at different stages along the journey, you have those different contexts. And that's way more useful to me than here's a picture of so-and-so in a persona that like they drive a, a car, like it's a Toyota. I don't care what their annual household income is. I don't care what car they drive. I don't care if they're on a scale of one to 10, how much they like Adobe. Like it's mm-hmm. a waste of, of mental energy and, and time as a designer to design those things out. Uh, I would rather, if we know we're starting with assumptions, put those assumptions out, mark down that they are assumptions and then get to a place where we have something that looks real and test it with people fast. So I spend a lot of time in this upfront user flow, user journey, user role land, and then get to high fidelity as fast as possible and validate that these ideas actually map to people's experiences. User role sounds like user tasks almost. Mm-hmm. Is that That's similar? An equi- okay, so so why would 
why would somebody use user roles as opposed to personas if you can just say, okay, these are just tasks that this type of persona does? Uh, it's far more actionable, and you also mm. cut out all the useless demographic information that okay. you add to a persona. Um, personas look different everywhere, obviously. Uh, like the ones I have the biggest bone to pick with are like the proto personas that are made by like marketing <laughs> or made <laughs> based on marketing personas. Like those, like oftentimes they're based on assumptions about people. They're almost always stereotypes. And if you're operationalizing a stereotype, that's a problem. Uh, and the people like a, a common use case for a persona is you're like, you ask it an imaginary question. You're like, hmm, would Susie do X, Y, Z? Uh, I don't know. Susie's not real. Let's actually talk to Susie, you know? Uh, yeah, it's a mess. So I, I, I advocate for cutting that out of the, the equation entirely. Uh, and starting from a task and role perspective uh, is much more useful to me. Uh, and then like when you take a user journey, like for Stark, it was the product development pipeline. So from early dis uh, discovery and research to actually like delivering on a thing and thinking about accessibility along each step. What is a different actor assuming a different role have to think about in those moments? And what are the opportunities that come out of that? So like, where could we meaningfully inject our products into those people's lives to make that step of the journey better for them? Uh, and that's like way more fruitful than like, would Susie use XYZ? And it's like, yeah, because we want her to use it. And it's like, none of it's real. <laughs> uh, same problem with wireframes. It's like this middle step that like, doesn't actually mean anything. It's just like uh, it made sense when it was harder to draw things on the internet or on your computer. Like it made sense when Photoshop was the design tool, but now it's like we got Figma. We just hit R and draw a rectangle. Like it's so easy. <laughs> so that, that's cool. I, I want to dive into your a little bit more of your, your Stark experience mm -hmm. and what are the biggest misconceptions people have about designing for accessibility also like designing software because Sark is not only designing for accessibility you're designing for accessibility for others yeah yeah <clears throat> it's kind of uh, it's tricky too because you're designing for designers at Stark, mm -hmm. um, which are and... which are the worst users ever designers are just unbearable knowing <laughs> that i'm a designer a very needy yeah. person yeah they're like they get super focused on things that are the wrong thing yeah, their, um, their user role is to be an ass. That's really what we are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like you'll get like a screenshot from a user and it's like, why is this one pixel off? And it's like, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> Have you looked at your own app lately? <laughs> the icons aren't aligned. Yeah. <laughs> we talked also, about that in the pod, I think, actually once. Um, yeah, so, sorry, continue. Yeah, no, also there is there is validity to it. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's another hot take that you've probably seen of mine where it's like, oftentimes the design nuance like that we talk about like icons and like should it be a 1.5 pixel but then if i like do like you know actual pixel render pixel render mode then i see all the like grains and the pixels like that stuff doesn't matter but it does it's like the death of a thousand cuts like if you ignore every single time the the important design thing then eventually you're just an awful product and it's just why not use craigslist or whatever um mm. But yeah, anyway, uh, so at Stark, designing for designers is a problem. <laughs> but also it's like a fun challenge because that's like a group of people that I love and I love design. Um, a misconception that people have about accessibility as a whole is that it's hard. And my hot take is that the accessibility uh, consultants and companies of the world, not including Stark, 
want to make it seem hard because they have a vested interest in it because mm-hmm. they make money acting like it's hard so they can consult. It's really not that hard if you start from the beginning with accessibility. It can be a daunting task and it is expensive and it can take a long time, but it doesn't mean that it's not simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it literally comes down to, if you're following the WCAG Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, perceivable, operable, understandable, robust, poor. That's their like ethos, their, uh, their um, like principles. If you follow that, most questions you have about accessibility become pretty obvious. It's like, hmm, should I do X, Y, Z? Like, will, will that make it perceivable? Probably not because I can't see the contrast. Fix it. Uh, is it operable? Can people use it? If they are using a, sc- a screen reader or assistive technology like switches and um, you know different ways of navigating the, the web, if they can't use it using those me- methodologies, then, then no. Like if they can't if they can't navigate your site with with a keyboard, then it's not operable. So you failed. Um, it's just like literally going down the list. It's very logical. Um, another thing working against accessibility and making it seem really hard uh, is the way the WCAG is written. Uh, it is written like it's for robots. <laughs> uh, it's very hard to understand. Um, they have they, like it's a it's a monolithic effort that like six people take on. By the way, it's not written by very many people, uh, and people don't understand that. It's a very small group of volunteers that write the WCAG. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, you're coming from a down position. You're trying to get people interested in accessibility, make it seem easy. But when you really get in there, it's not that hard. There's not that much to consider. So, I guess why wouldn't somebody just make like a like a Chat GPT uh, chatbot that lets you, uh, I guess, port over all the what do you call it the the WCAG WCAG the or the w- the w- WCAG some people say the WCAG mm-hmm. depending on who you are. <laughs> Whatever that phrase is, I know it stands for the, the thing. Yeah. But um, what if they just ported that all into? A, I don't know why I'm using the word port, but like you're importing it into yeah. a model, and then you export, you know, the chatbot, and then that is like kind of like uh, you can interface with it in a more simple human way. Is that something that's like possible? Yeah, I mean, honestly, ask it right now, and it, it answers yeah, probably fairly does. well. True. Um, okay. Cool. Yeah, we'll have to, yeah. We'll have to build that. <laughs> uh, literally, you can chat GPT. Just be like, "Hey, you know, I have a floating action button. What's the best way to to make that accessible?" And it can say the it can give you literally code snippets on how to make it accessible. Uh, if it's iOS or whatever the case may be, uh, it's yeah, it's pretty. It's actually fairly good at that. And um, I asked it some pretty tricky questions, like when it first dropped back in you know November or whenever that was that it was first mm-hmm. blowing up. Um, we asked it some pretty tricky questions and uh, it answers fairly well, similar to the way that like a Stark employee would answer the questions. Oh, cool. Yeah. Sweet. Cool. Cool. Um, Pascal, do you have any questions on that? Not on that, but I wanted to go back to, um, we talk a lot about, you know, controversial and, you know, topics and design. There's a lot of controversy on like, it's easy to pick a fight on design because like, a lot of it, obviously, there's there's some facts and laws that you mentioned at the beginning, like the UX laws. Those are like basic foundational laws. Like a lot of people can recite them by heart, but when you look at their design, they don't obviously don't know. And that that's another conversation. But like, what is, in your opinion, right now the most controversial topic in design? And I, I mean, there's an array of them, but where like in where I'm trying to get to this is. 
people are trying to figure out how to navigate design, how to grow in their career and how to move forward, they're following a lot of people, et cetera. What's the controversial topic from your point of view that could help them move forward, take the noise out, et cetera. Hmm. Tough question. I know, but yeah. Um, a lot of what, uh, makes people mad in controversy is often really simple things. Uh, and I think, I think part of the reason for that is like to get past the, the simple, uh, layer it requires a certain level of experience. Uh, and there's just less people that are past that layer that can talk about something. So talking about naming layers is something that makes a lot of people mad because almost everyone can relate to it in one way or the other. Um, the same is true of like, uh, you know, I have a friend who um, you maybe saw his tweet kind of go viral or he was talking about the uh, same sort of thing I was saying where like, um, you know, there's there's a, a lot of stuff that designers worry about isn't worth worrying about. And like, if you have a small, he's bootstrapping a business. Uh, so he has, he feels this himself. Like I could spend all day fixing the little design bugs on, my landing page, but I don't have enough monthly run rate to worry about that right now. Like I have all these other problems and that mm-hmm. makes people mad too. Cause then it that makes them feel invalidated as a designer that like the things we worry about aren't important. And it's mm-hmm. it, it, like, it's kind of true, but it's also not true at the same time. Um, like, like I said, you know, earlier um, that there's validity that you need to have um, uh, like design needs to be uh, considered. It needs to, be uh things should be as clean as they can be given the state of things but also at some point you need to ship your products um so i think that's one thing um a controversial thing that i think would help a lot of people is understanding that design is a business career um and that businesses want to be profitable and it's that your salary costs more than the profit or revenue that you bring in for your company, then you get laid off. That's just like how it works. Um, and it's not fun to get laid off. Uh, I've, I've been there. Uh, I've had my salary cut by 50%. Like it, it's not fun. Um, but like, if you understand that, first of all, you feel it. You can feel it breathing down your neck. Mm. I've been on a team where I was like, hmm, let me do the math. We're some of the highest paid people in the company and they frozen hiring and we don't make anything that could make mm-hmm. them money. Hmm. Who would I cut first? Uh, <laughs> but if you can think so about your that, career with it. Sorry, I was going to say, is that why you think designers usually get fired first from like layoffs in terms mm-hmm. of like, who do we cut? I think, I, well, I think who gets so. cut first? Is, I think so yeah, because like th- developers so. and, and like developers are going to think we don't need designers. I can go and do it myself. We got tools. I'm just going to design. True. To, I mean, to some degree, I mean, they're not wrong. They can, they can build stuff. But at the end of the day, it's like, yeah. it's like the tweet I said, uh, I posted earlier this week. It's like, you can build a cardboard chair. It's a chair. It works fantastic. But you could also build an Eames chair that's been around for 70 years and it's still going to be around for another 70 years because it's a yeah. timeless piece of, and it's well-crafted. I mean, you can tell like the products that launch without design and the ones that do, that put the user at the center and then they're really well-crafted. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're all replaceable. It doesn't matter who you are. Now it's like even developers may end up being replaceable with ChatGPT and like all the code space. I mean, we're all going to end up at one point. But I think unfortunately, a lot of companies, not everybody, because 
we now have a seat at the table. Like the CEO of Ford is like an ex designer, et cetera. We do have, like we're growing in the craft, but mm. many companies still do see design as quick exit. We don't need them. We're going to figure it out. And they're not, they're not half wrong. Yeah. I, I think if you're in brand design, you're, you're much more susceptible to that, to that way of thinking like marketing research and brand are the first branches to get cut in my experience. Uh, and then potentially product design. Um, it, it obviously depends on your company and, and how they value design. Some companies value design a lot more than others. Um, but if you think in terms of profit centers versus cost centers, it, it starts to make sense. Why marketing is a cost center and it's, it's kind of silly in one way that like we think of it that way because also you need the cost centers to bring in business. And like, you know, like to me laying off researchers first is kind of like, Oh, we don't need eyes. We'll just go how it was going the dark. It's like you gouged out your eyes first. That was silly. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. It's one of the first things to get cut. And uh, I think it's a, a mistake, but also, um, uh, if you, if you, Structure your career and the way that you work in a way that your value so vastly outpaces the cost of hiring you. Uh, and not that you should take less money uh, necessarily, um, but also like just just do such good work that like laying you off would would be detrimental to the culture of a company. Like I think that that there's a lot to be said about that. Um like being a, like, you know, the term a culture carrier. Um, I think there's something, there's something there about like being the person who like people go to for something. Um, when I was in school, I read this book, burn your portfolio. And uh, I don't remember who the author is, but he uh, runs an agency or at least at the time ran an agency. And he talks about um, the story about how every time they hire a new person, they have these, uh, like big lunches for uh, for all the team members and they go around the table and they all tell their worst first job story or like their worst job story. Uh, and there's one guy who to this, to the day of him writing the book uh, had the worst job story. And it was, he worked at a dog food factory and when they make dog food, they use old rancid meat and they pour it in this vat and they grind it up and turn it into dog food and it would splash back on him and it would get onto his, like, you know, he's wearing a suit to like protect him but it would seep through the suit and it would get into his pores. And then he would sweat and smell like dog food. And what's funny about that disgusting story is like that guy, I think he was a developer, um, that guy, if their studio toilet plugged, he was the person to go fix it. And if a light bulb was out, he'd be the person to go fix it. And I'm not saying you have to be the janitor of your design office, but <laughs> uh, also like to be the person that, that is willing to get your hands dirty and fix a problem first to be a, uh, have the bias towards action uh, immediately made it so that every time he the you know the author of this book had to look at layoffs that person was never considered because it was like we he he'll unplug our toilet like <laughs> he's the guy that will help <laughs> us um there's something to be said about that uh and and, and treating your career that way um so i don't know how controversial code. that is or not but so should designers code uh yes but no, I think designers need to understand code. Um, the be the more you understand it, the better. There's it never hurts to understand how back end code works. Especially a lot of designers have a big blind spot there. They ignore back end. Um, 
And I worked on a team at Candid with only backend engineers, and that was a trip. <laughs> uh, there was like one full stack dude who would come up every once in a while to help build the things I was designing for him. Uh, but that was awesome to be in like these standups with engineers talking about migrations and backfills. And I'm like, I don't know what any of that means. I do now. Um, but yeah, I think designers should at the very least understand code. That'd be like an architect being like, I don't know how gravity works. It's like, well, that's a mistake because now all your structural engineers are going to hate you because you're designing things that defy gravity and they have to figure out where to put their load bearing walls in your floating you know, marble building. Uh, it's a mess. Uh, yeah. So yeah, a hundred percent designers should understand code. Um, I mm-hmm. don't think that for the majority of designers that coding in your nine to five is a good use of time. Cause you're probably slower than your engineers. Um, it depends. Obviously that's not a, a, a black and white statement. Like I've worked with engineers who used to be designers and are awesome mm-hmm. uh, and can like do most of it on their own. And I've worked with people that are the opposite as well. Engineers who became, designers that's it uh <laughs> strike and reverse it either way um i've worked with, with both types uh, so i think that sometimes designers should code on your own on your own projects code all the time i think i, awesome. I, I think building awesome. empathy for developers is extremely important because people yes. like mm-hmm. designers like if you code or not like designers who don't understand they have defects to fix they have like they're bound and they're obviously evaluated by the amount of defects they closed, et cetera. So we need to understand that side of the world. It's not just about understanding yeah. code. It's yes and building empathy for them and, and understanding how they are evaluated, what their day-to-day looks like compared to you moving pixels and user research, et cetera. So I think it's, it was just, you know, adding a yes and to your statement there. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, and also Sorry. understanding when like you add something to a UI that that's probably going to be an endpoint that doesn't exist, and is it really worth building this new endpoint that that shows like one little piece of data? Like, is it actually worth it for the engineer, or would you rather spend the time building the thing that actually moves the needle for your business, for your product, for your users? Great. So we covered accessibility being important, wireframing. Who fucking cares? Don't do it. And uh, yeah, um, designers should understand code and have empathy for for the developers. Thank you so much, Treg. This was an awesome episode, really, truly. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Is, is there anything you want to plug? Anything you want to share? Yeah. Socials? Uh, yeah, so I'm at Tregify on Twitter. I'm at TRE.GG uh, on Blue Sky. I'm one of the cool mm. kids that got invited two days ago. Um, that's also my 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 website tre.gg that's my portfolio um i have a uh a list of resources called degree list so that's like having a degree less dot design um that is a list of resources for designers who want to learn uh, it is very opinionated and structured i think you should understand the basics from the beginning i'm in the process of reworking that and doing a bunch of cool stuff with it uh making a course actually shilling i'm shilling a course i'm <laughs> do it uh yeah so uh, i'm in the early stages of that uh, that should be coming soon awesome looking forward to that thank you so much Bye.